Welcome back to the In Search of Shays podcast. Because if you can only speak speak of something on a level of, of abstraction, I don't think you really understand it. Judaism's way. Judaism recognizes the validity of the whole pool as long as it's monotheistic. It's not how much of God can I understand. That's not the metric. It's how much of my understanding is preoccupied with the knowledge of God. Welcome to the In Search of More podcast. I am your host, Ellie Nash. Join me weekly on my quest for more, more from myself and more from this world. We'll see you on the other side. Shays, welcome back. Welcome back to the In Search of Shays podcast. Oh, is that like the subtitle <laughs> for this? <laughs> I don't know. No, we, yeah. we speak often, so. Yeah, Baruch Hashem. Yeah. That's good. It's beautiful. Yeah. You know that back in the 70s, there was this um, this uh, series that was hosted by Leonard Nimoy called In Search Of. Before my time. In Search Of. Yeah. And it was... It usually was about paranormal topics like uh, UFOs and stuff like that, psychic abilities, and yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, with my conversations today, they were not much different. So really, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think so. I had a, a fascinating day. Okay, you know what? You know what? I spoke a, um, a lot of like like the a theme, and I'm speaking to someone tomorrow about it. Maybe you can. Um, if you have anything to say before we jump into the sikha, because this this is one is going to be um, a conversation where we dive into a sikha and we seek to make it practical. Yeah, we've done we that seek, before. We've done it before, and we have the same mandate on this one. Mm-hmm. Um, make it make it make sense in a meaningful way. Right. That's all. And but before we go there, I had a conversation. This morning with a gentleman named Rudy Rachman. Do you know Rudy Rachman? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so Rudy is in town for his uh, docu series called "We Were Never Lost." Right, heard of it. Where he's traveling through Africa Mm -hmm. in search of lost tribes. Yeah. Afterwards, he's going to Asia, and then to South America. He believes there's somewhere between three and five hundred million. people in the world that are part of the lost tribes of Israel, not all of which practice Judaism. So, for example, in Nigeria, there's maybe 50 million, I think he said, I think he said some number like that, like 50 million Ebos. Yeah. But he said the people who practice Judaism amongst the Ebos are somewhere like 20 or 30,000. Mm-hmm. In any event, that was a conversation in the morning. We spoke a lot about what he's working on there, his time in prison in Nigeria when they arrested him for thinking he's some sort of Mossad spy. In the afternoon, I spoke with a, um, a healer of sorts who is his family is from Afghanistan, from a tribe called the Pashtun. The yeah. Pashtun, a very interesting tribe. Have you heard of them? Yeah. So they identify, he said his actual name, this gentleman translated into i think farsi is the son of yosef or translated from farsi is the son of yosef because they identify as coming from the tribe of yosef and of the many practices that they have besides for the fact that they don't consider the quran their holiest book they call it something called the pashtu ali which has 10 um 
10 ideals, or I don't call it 10 commandments because I don't use that word, but these 10 ideals, and they say it comes from Musa, Moses. Amongst other things, they're one of the few Muslims on the planet that um, circumcised at eight days old as opposed to 13 years old. Yeah. And there are many other practices that they have that are Jewish. Yeah. Tomorrow, I'll be sitting down with a, a rabbi named Rabbi Harry Rosenberger. You know, do you know who he is? Yeah, I know who he is, yeah. And he studies this uh, topic as well yeah. of the lost tribes. Any thoughts um, on this? It definitely seems to be connected, at least from the Gona Vilna and maybe some earlier prophecies. But Harry is a descendant of the Gona Vilna, so he mentions his words that Mashiach will not come until the lost tribes come together, which I think there's other words like that, that we're all going to be pulled from the four corners of the world, right? And there aren't really Jews if you take the four tribes out of the equation, are there really Jews in four corners of the world? Well, when Mashiach comes... Have you thought comes, on this concept? When Mashiach comes, there's definitely going to be some people who are in for a surprise because they're going to all of a sudden find out that they're Jewish. No question. So, so this this concept of the the lost tribes, this search, have you have you a thought on on this at all? Well, opinion? Have you researched you know, it? So I'll, I'll, I'll be honest here. Personally, I was never fascinated with the lost tribes as a subject unto itself. But to me, I look at it more in the, in the, in the micro, meaning the individual. Setting aside the whole question of entire tribes that are lost, certainly we know there are many individuals who are lost. So there are many Jews who don't know that they're Jewish, whether they were lost in... in, in, in right, that in, exists in America. I mean, I mean, people all the time. All the time. So whether that was because of a massive upheaval of a whole population or just because of assimilation of an individual family. Uh, but anyways, to answer your question, there's a lot of people, perhaps millions and millions, that will all of a sudden find out they are Jewish when Mashiach comes, yeah. A friend of my wife's family was getting married and she was an older woman who had been, you know, looking for the one for many years. And after about 15 or 17 years of this search, maybe late 30s, early 40s, so probably longer than that, she encountered someone she thought was not Jewish and developed a strong connection. And I think she had grown up religious or close to it. So it was a pretty big deal that she was, you know, planning on moving forward, right. marrying this gentleman. And um, they had asked, I think my wife's brother, would you officiate at the wedding? My brother-in-law. I was a little uncomfortable. And he said, you know, what, what about taking a DNA test? For the guy. And this, I, I've met the gentleman, Rache's, not what you'd expect. You, he's not like, oh, he seems, he seems Jewish, if that means anything. He seemed anything but. I mean, as yeah. an example, his favorite pastime was golf and tennis, right? It's not, yeah, maybe <laughs> retired Jews in Florida, it's a thing. It's not like. <laughs> okay. Right. Uh, Ali, your, 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 your uh, Brooklyn roots are showing there. <laughs> hey, you speak like a real Brooklyn Jew. Like. <laughs> Golf and tennis, how guyish. There's plenty of Jews no, in the golf. Anyways, there are yes. plenty of Jews. I play yeah. tennis also. I don't mean yes. it's okay. it's the it's the culture of it, not the sport, yes. Yes. not the sport of it. It's the New England um 
you know, J. Crew shorts wearing. It's not not uh-huh. what you'd expect with a name that's You're like saying he came seventh- off as, as very waspy. Waspy. Thank you. Okay. All right. So he came very much. Takes yeah. a DNA test, and the results were like I don't remember, but something you know over seventy percent. I remember yeah. Ashkenazi Jew. Yeah. And he confronted his mother with this information. He was old. He was in his fifties <laughs> uh-huh. at the time. The woman was in her 40s, 50s. Mother was, you know, I guess in the 80s. And yeah. she admitted that after the Holocaust, she Oy. went underground. She went underground and did not want to. Okay. Um, so, Ellie, there are millions of people like that. So, in addition to the lost tribes, where you talk about entire populations, yeah, there are individuals like that lost all over the world. You know, that point of one last Jew, I'll tell you a story, which is pretty meaningful to me. So, um, after my wedding, but my wife and I got married in Italy, and um, I think from Florence we went to a little town. Got married in Florence, and I forget where we did our honeymoon, but it was another very very small town in um, Italy. And the hotel we were on was on top of a hill, and the main city you can take a bus like a shuttle that the hotel had. They had two hotels, not two hotels, two buildings for this hotel. One was in the main city, and one was on top of this hill. So we were on top of the hill. And there was a shuttle that would take you down to the main square where that's where the city was, the shops. It was a small city, but one of the times we're waiting for the shuttle and we said, you know what, you know, maybe there's a different way. I think there was a couple um, who was there also getting frustrated waiting for the shuttle and said, maybe we'll just walk down. I said, there's a way to walk down. I said, yeah, there's a path that cuts through here. So we started following them. We go to the steps, we go to the path. And I see a um, sign that says, you know, art for sale or something like that, or something about an artist. So just being curious, I said, hey, let's check this out. And um, I walk up the steps in the shop, and the artist's name, I think, was Dorado Cohen, if I remember. Okay. Dorado Cohen. So older, older gentleman in his 90s. Mm. I start chatting with him, and... Bought a couple pieces of his art. Asked him about his uh, Judaism, and I'm not usually doing mitzvahim. This is not, <laughs> this is not typically my way. But as I was talking to him, I said, um, he said, you know, his children moved out, and he said he's the last remaining Jew in the city. Wow. Tell me. So I asked him if he has tefillah, and I said maybe we'll do it together. So he said he didn't, um, or maybe he did, but they were very old. He didn't have functional ones for sure. And I said, I'll bring mine by later. Wow. But he did have like a stack of talesim, like worn out, <laughs> you know. Interesting. He did have a stack. So I came, so I came back a little bit later and um, we put on film together. And I saw what, the reason it touched me was I saw the emotion in his, like in his eyes, like when he, when he did this. And um, I actually have some pictures. And the reason I'm remembering the story is because I was looking up something if, a couple of days ago and the pictures of me with him putting on tefillin and the old talis draped over his shoulders um, reminded me of this and just seeing that emotion there like it felt very very meaningful to him that he had this opportunity to do that and a couple months later I got an email because I had bought some art from him so I was on his email list that Dorado Cohen had um, had, had passed away we also in addition to that um, my wife said hey why don't we take him for uh, for dinner the next I, that, that night or the next night. So one night we went for him for dinner and he went dinner. He got all dressed up and we had a, a nice time together. But if, if whoever's editing this, 
<laughs> remembers to reach out to me for a couple of pictures. I'll share it so we can um, cut it into this. I think it'll uh, nice and um, add some to add some, uh, I guess, flavor, some spice to what I'm uh, to what I'm talking about, and hopefully see the emotion on Dorado's face. Um, from that, but I guess that's what he's talking about. It truly was that, right? For this one person to feel like, I don't know what it was, but there was something, there was something that lit up when he was with me, saying there was a pride, right? This last Jew in this town in, uh, in Italy. And to have that experience was definitely a meaningful, meaningful one for him and for me by extension. So I understand, I understand uh, that, that drive. We don't need to find 30,000 to make it meaningful. It can be just for, uh, just for the one. And when you're putting okay, we'll stuff out online like you are, Ellie, I'm sure that uh, just statistically it's probable that there are lost sparks that are returning because of, or at least being facilitated in their return by by things like uh, this this podcast. Yeah, that's what keeps me going. You know, I. But first of all, I should say that when I don't do it, I pay a price. Because if it doesn't come out of my mouth, the energy like feels stuck inside me. Mm -hmm. And if I wasn't in a discussion with you, <laughs> different guests, I'd explain where the energy comes out of. So there's definitely something that's like, I almost have to, if I'm not doing these things in some fashion, um, I, it's definitely very connected. I'll, I'll say it this in the cleanest way. It was definitely very connected uh, to my addiction to pornography, 100%. That when there wasn't the expression of certain things when the energy didn't come out in that way. But what keeps me going certainly are certain um, messages that I get. And I'll never forget, I'm still in contact with him. He actually reached out to me a little bit ago on uh, your fundraiser, which is coming up again <laughs> soon. So this time of year, I think it was two years ago or three years ago, it was a Saturday night. Remember where I was, I had just started learning Sichas and uh, you invited me on your old day event. Chaim Cohen was hosting. And Chaim Cohen's hosting again this year as well. Oh, beautiful. Right. So I think, depending on when you're listening to it, Rabbi Shase's event is going on um, uh, this week, the week of this release. Right? Yeah. Starts so the day Monday this night. is expected to be released. Yeah, the day this is expected to be released on a Saturday night. This is uh, Monday night for four days, right? Yeah, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, yeah. So definitely join in terms of the learning and also in terms of participation. And currently there's nothing I do that um, I, uh, I charge for. But if someone, I'll say this, if someone feels like I've touched them in some way and they want to give back a little bit, a donation to Rabbi Chase's Soul Words campaign is meaningful as if it went directly to me. Wow. So just put in the notes. If anyone so writes your name in the in the notes, definitely we'll uh, we'll <laughs> let you know. You'll let me know. But certainly, I've 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 received messages. Even yesterday, I received a message from someone uh, which touched me, which she said that um, she saw a podcast I did with a therapist on um, it was on sexual addiction, which we ended up talking about abuse, and she works mostly with the Orthodox community, so she spoke a lot of the dynamics and everything else. And she said when she watched that podcast, she went down a rabbit hole of um, my podcasts and different videos I put out. And she said that um, in her case, she was abused by a, she was sexually abused by a teenager, just like I was. 
And sometimes in those experiences, it becomes somewhat difficult to monster the person enough, <laughs> you know, in order to feel the pain. Like the person mm -hmm. was so bad, you know, and it, it took me some time to wrap my head around that it doesn't really matter who's standing on the other side, uh, on the other end of the knife that goes into someone's stomach. Like, mm -hmm. whether it's a hardened terrorist who throws a rock and <laughs> hits someone in the head, or it's a 12 year old kid who thought he was having fun with his friends to see how far he can throw a rock. Right. And it hits some innocent Israeli in the head. The pain is the same. Mm. And uh, she, and I shared that, and I spoke about that, and I, she identified with the confusion that that added to it the fact that I was abused by a teenager. And then someone asked me, Who was I abused by? And I was like, Oh, it was just a teenager. I was like, Oh, I'm not supposed to feel bad about it? Okay, good. So, so I won't. And then it just adds a level of confusion, which just makes it more painful. Mm. So she, she had said that for the first time, and I think she put some number like, 17 years, I think she wants to, she said something like that, that she's been working on this and in therapy and struggling and something about um, me speaking and sharing that aspect of my story landed for her in a way that things happen. I think that was the number. I mean, that's an incredibly long time to be working on something and not feel that liberation and breakthrough. So um, yeah, I hope people are touched in, um, in more ways than one. But I will say my sister came over for Shabbos the other day. She had a baby girl, my sister, Rachi, Rachi. Yeah, Mazel Tov, yeah. And... Uh, she was over for Shabbos a couple of weeks ago, and she said, um, Ellie, that sicha you did with Shays, it was, <laughs> it was great. So you should do more of them. I said, let's do it. We'll make it happen. Okay. All we need is one. If it touches one, if it touches one, it's enough for me. So fine. That was a long introduction to our sicha. But I do want to say something that I'm certain, even though I don't know how yet, I'm certain that at the end of this sicha, it will somehow connect. It's not even possible that there won't be a connection between what we spoke about and where we go. Not even a little bit. It's Of course it'll happen. It would, yeah, that's right. It would upend the rules of nature. Like, if that happens, I'll, I'll go up and smoke at the, <laughs> at the end of this. Everything I know doesn't exist. My whole identity will be called into question. So. Okay. Parshas Mishpatim. Again, we're learning from right here, Sichas in English. Parsha Shmais, um, and uh, we chose one of the Parsha's uh, Mishpatim. Okay, so it starts off, right, for Elah Mishpatim, and these are the laws, right, right. the legal laws, right? Asher Tassim Lefneim that I'm putting before you, right? It says Mishpatim, is that the right term, legal laws? Legal like, laws? <clears throat> um, I mean, it sounds a little bit redundant, but explain what you it mean. It sounds, but it's meaning it's 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 the laws that to deal with more common sense behaviors, as opposed to um, laws. But, yeah, ritual I don't know, around Shabbos kosher ritual things observance. Like that. Ritual observance, yeah. Yes. So when you say legal laws, you mean more like. Um, commerce, civil, commerce, civil. damages, uh, property. Yes. yes. Yeah, that kind of stuff. Treatment of uh, of other people. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so these are the laws that I'm putting before you. So this is like this. That, that you should put before them. Hashem is speaking to Moshe, right. to Moses. Okay, these are the laws you should put before them. Which means and he, he should says, teach to the people. Well, it's a, it's a, it's, it's an odd language. Yes, so it is. You can say that in many different ways. You can say that in many different ways. These yes. are the laws that I'll put before them. So there are 
three slash four, really four um, explanations he gives of this language. Yes. This odd use of language. Yes. One put before them, who is them, that when there's a disagreement, put it before a Jewish court of law. Right. So is this the source for that? When we say, yeah, yeah when we say there's a, um, like I have a, uh, a, a dispute with someone, a Jewish fellow, he took me to um, secular court. Yeah. That would be, that would be in violation of, uh, of this. In other yeah. words, okay, fine. You you may, you should tell. And I just did. Oh, you did. <laughs> no, I just did. Oh, I just right did here. That. I said it recorded. Yeah. I just did. So, yeah. I'll also tell him thank you. It's been a wonderful, wonderful learning experience for me. So, okay, so that that's where that comes from, right? That two Jews who are in dispute should take the matter to a Jewish court. Yes. So obviously, right, if it came to, uh, you want to go to a secular court to identify whether someone kept Shabbos or not. That's not the risk. Right. The risk is for civil civil laws. Right. Or, you know, the kind we discussed. Say, no, we bring it in front of Jewish courts. Number two is make it make sense. And I wonder if this was done, right? Put it before them, meaning deliver these laws to them in a way that makes sense to them. So the question, like, is this done? I don't feel like this was done. When? You don't feel it was done when? When I was a child in yeshiva, I don't feel like this was done. I don't feel like it was, um, I don't feel like this was heated in any serious way. Mm -hmm. I. So you're reading, like you're reading was... this sicha, and it's telling you that this verse in the Torah means that when Torah is taught, it has to be made understood to the listener. And you're like, really? Lifnehem, before them, before who? <laughs> Whoever you're talking to. Right. Right. That's right. Yeah. Make it make sense to them. Right. Meaning I, it, it's not enough to say the right thing. You have to make sure that the listener understands it correctly. Yeah, without calling anyone out, let me just say that just Who was the worst it's, it's teacher you ever had in Yeshiva? <laughs> no, it's an extreme it's an extreme <laughs> example, but let's say let's say something uh, let's say Shabbos, right? Let's yeah. say Shabbos because my my uh, journey with Shabbos is has not been has been anything but linear. Uh but it's something that I've reapproached in the last couple of years and it's been more yeah, it's it's been more than when I say reapproached, it didn't go from not observing to observing. That's not that's not how my story went. It went where I said, Hey, let me not work at all on Shabbos. Let me stop driving on Shabbos. Let me and cutting out certain behaviors and eventually, you know, where it is now, keeping it to the best of my knowledge, which can change week to week, but you know, keeping it to the best of uh to, to the best of my knowledge. And today there's a true appreciation for it. I heard uh Dennis Prager say do you know what the punishment, he was on a non-Jewish podcast, he said, do you know what the punishment for not keeping Shabbos is? He says, not having Shabbos. And it, it hit home, I feel like it's, what a difference it makes in my week to, to have that. And I mean, he said that, he said on weeks that he doesn't have, he doesn't have it, he feels it in some way. And there's different variations of what that, what that means. When I went to interview Gabor Mate a few weeks ago, 
So I had Shabbos. I had in a hotel with a local Chabad house who delivered wine. And yeah, it was Shabbos in the sense that I didn't, um, I, I didn't get in a car on Shabbos, right? But I didn't have a Shabbos. Like my Shabbos meal was myself. It was Shabbos. I had Lechemishna and wine, but I didn't have a Shabbos experience mm-hmm. like I do when I'm, when I'm at home and meals and family and things like that. But the reason I thought not to keep Shabbos was because God said so. Was to keep Shabbos was because God said so. The same with pornography, because God said so. Don't watch it, because God. But it feels so good. But God wants you miserable, almost. I mean, that's mm. that's at least what I was left with. So, I, I I think that people listening will agree with my experience. But this would be in in violation of what it's saying here. Let's elaborate on that. As extreme. As one Jew taking another Jew to court, as far as Jewish law is concerned, yeah. would be a teacher communicating to a student and not doing everything he could to make it make sense to them. Okay. I don't know if it's as extreme because there could be within each it's of those literally the cases, same wo- there could be various levels of, of, of uh, extremeness. But certainly we're we're learning them both from the same source which means they must have some type of relationship which is indeed what the rabbi says in the sikha in fact you've only mentioned two interpretations of this verse but uh i think we mentioned three or four of them and the rabbi says they there's all four, must a total be, of four hmm there are four i'm going through them you're going through them right and i'm saying that not only are these two connected but all of them are connected Right, 100%. Right. They're, they're all similar. Okay, so the first but thing is... Here the connection I made was more in severity, right? If it's coming from the same line, I mean, right. even though to, to make a distinction I think would I, be... Can I, can I decode this for people who may be listening who don't come from yes. the observant world? For sure. Ellie was speaking in cultural shorthand to people who come from an observant background. They all know that it's absolutely um, anathema for a Jew to take another Jew to a secular court over a business matter. Like everyone would be ashamed about something. Right, meaning like understanding that. that there are Jewish courts. There are Jewish right, courts that are exist. Jewish courts. Right. You take, you go to the Jewish court. You go to the rabbinical court, and everyone knows that. So Ellie's basically saying, why don't those same people? react with equal shock or dismay or disapproval when they hear that somebody had a yeshiva education and he didn't really manage to absorb what he was taught. It never never really was explained to him well. Like, why isn't that equally right. as upsetting? On religious Correct. grounds. Right, on religious grounds. Yeah. Yeah. I'm saying make it make sense. Exactly yeah. what we're doing. We're saying even more than make it make sense. Make it be practical. Well, I, I would hears. say it's not more. I would say that's the definition of making sense. Because if you can only speak speak of something on a level of, of abstraction, I don't think you really understand it. Right. So what I mean is, when we say practical, let's define this. Make it be practical in my life today with the stuff yeah. I'm dealing with today. Meaning the, the fact that it, it wouldn't be practical enough if the takeaway from this was that a teacher should explain to a kid. So unless you, know, you if some, unless you, the person listening right now, right, are a teacher, teacher today, and you're sitting there thinking, should I work harder at my students actually understanding what I'm talking about? Then 
this what we're saying already would be directly practical. We hit the goal for them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. For them, they're done already. You could stop yeah, watching. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But I, I'm going to double down and say, I don't think they're two separate things. If you don't know how it applies to your life right now, you don't really understand it. Making it practical and understanding it are not two separate things. To me, that's the litmus okay. test of understanding something. If you can't tell me an example of whatever we learned, whatever it is, if you can't give me an example of it from your life, you don't understand it. And it may not be your fault. It may be the fault of the person who explained it to you. But the fact remains, you don't understand it yet. So let's take the very first law that's um, that's uh, brought up here. After in in the part in this section, right after it says this, the very next law, if I recall, right. is a slave should go free on its seventh year. Right. So yeah. if a slave, not I don't think a slave is understood the way we use the term slave. It's that if someone steals money from someone, it's an and indentured in order to servant. pay them back. Yeah. Okay, indentured servant, then they have to yeah, which I don't know work if it's for them more politically correct uh, than slave. But I yeah. know, but it. Right, it's more it accurate, I mean, and, it, and it's more. They have to work to pay off so their it debt. Confuses people, so. <laughs> but they have to work to. It's someone who's working to pay off a debt. Yeah. Right. It's not someone who was sold, who was kidnapped and sold. It was someone who's working to pay off a debt. But they say at the end of seven years you're done. You can't be paying off a debt right. for more than. It's six actually years. At the end of six years, but in the seventh year. Then, right. So yeah. in the seventh year it's done. Right. At yeah. the end of six years you're done. Yeah. So similar to the to Shabbos, right? <laughs> You're done. You got a day of rest. Can I make a very and you don't have to come back and you don't have to come back to work on Sunday. Can I make a ridiculously obscure reference that nobody in the world will appreciate except for me? Go ahead. Uh, Gary Berghoff, who played Walter Radar, Radar O'Reilly in the famous uh, Mash television series that aired on CBS for eleven years, he quit after seven seasons, and he said. Because the Bible says that even a servant goes free after seven years. And that always <laughs> bugged me because it's not after seven years. It's at the after six years once you go into the seventh year. But anyway, okay. Yeah, gotcha. Okay, this is why he needed a, a rabbi. Yeah. <laughs> but that's a good line. The uh, Okay, so something like that. So, something like that. Can you make that practical? In my day-to-day -day life, like, what does that mean to me? I'm not an indentured servant. I don't have an indentured servant. Uh, I don't know of an indentured servant. So are you saying every single line, or if we go through a topic like this and we explore yeah, every, 10 Every pages, line, every word. Every line and every word, okay. sure. Okay. Okay. Should we should we dive into that one, how we can make it practical? or should We, we could, but I, I, I mean, <laughs> the question is if you want to go through the the actual sicha, but we we could take uh, detours if you wish. Take a detour. Let's hear it. Um, there's a, there's a lot of because someone who's not looking for a detour, someone who's not looking for a detour can can read it right here. It's sichas in English. They can do what I did, what you did. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, the the whole idea of the Evid Ivri. The indentured servant is uh, it's not just a legal status. It's a, it's a spiritual concept. It's, it's discussed in Chassidus often that uh, there's a relationship with, a, with Hashem that's referred to as Eved Ivri. 
Um, it's a relationship of surrender where you no longer um, you no longer suppose that God is supposed to uh, serve you meaning you know the the the, the typical unspoken religious uh, agenda is well why would I do this thing if it's not going to work out better for me right so right. God is supposed to serve me Evan like what's the punishment is, for not keeping Shabbos losing money right yeah like some someone thinking so meaning and the inverse right if I keep Shabbos I'll make money right so Evan Ivri is a description of a level of a relationship where a person is serving God because of God's gratification Right, so to to allow oneself to, to, to step away from the relationship with God as being the puppet master of God. If I do this, he will do that, right? And we step into... Yeah. Um, it, it w- and does a puppet master, <laughs> is that too extreme? Yeah, it's not I, puppet uh, master. I think it's more like the vending machine. Right, I, f- I feel like, okay, I hear you. I, I hear the, the puppet master to me, the reason I use that is because I've heard it communicated in some way that if I'm going to do this and he must do that. Right. Right. It's like, okay, so who's, who's controlling who in this relationship? Okay. But you're saying something else. Even you're saying that we're, we're okay. Like is we're okay for this relationship to be to the benefit of. Yeah. Which is in distinction with the spiritual level level called Evid Kanaini, Canaanite servant. That's that's he's still a servant, but he hates it. He resents Understood. it, but at least he's doing it. So you got to give him credit for that. Well, you can even say, you know, maybe a more common um, metaphor for the relationship between man and God is father and son. That's another relationship. That's another relationship. So that would have yeah. a, a different spin on it in terms of the who the beneficiary is, perhaps than a master slave which is what we're talking about here yeah and then there's another a level which is the uh the maidservant which it also speaks about in the parsha she starts off as a servant but at the end of her servitude she has an option to actually marry the master and become his wife and that's the highest level where you graduate from working for Hashem to uniting with Hashem like a spouse is united oh, and that's a third metaphor for the yes. uh, relationship yeah it's often used meaning not a third within slaves a third metaphor being father son husband wife master well, slave well the, the, the parent child is one track and then within servitude there are three there are three there are three levels canaanite servant israelite servant and israelite maid servant sounds so funny and archaic <coughs> using these english words so okay i see what you did there you just gave us like a class in uh 
Hasidus and Kabbalah, showing how every single concept is a on a spiritual dimension. Can you bring it home for us in terms of the whole sentence? And obviously, it's putting you on the spot. And even even if Chase can say, I don't, I don't have it right now. We won't hold it against you. But he works six this years idea and, of, and he goes free in the seventh. Yes. Is yes. talking about the refinement of the emotional faculties. There are six emotional faculties. So basically, he works on personal development, and then he reaches a place called the seventh year, which is Shabbos, which is rest. So after uh, working for God, you refine your character, and then you come to serenity. Uh-huh. So after we after these six levels are worked through, yeah. what's the name of the seventh level? Malchus? Malchus, which corresponds to Shabbos. Oh, understood. Okay, so it's that, it's peace, it's serenity. Yeah. Yisrael. Beautiful. Let's take another detour into personal development. Okay. Um, does it feel uncommon to you, this focus on... Um, personal development within within our, you know our background the community I grew up in and then yours you once called me a terrible name you called me a balaveda yeah you referred to me okay as, maybe which uh, you once did I'm telling you yeah. <laughs> you once did I've been I've been I, called worse things okay I believe right which it. how how do you translate that as someone who somebody who works, works on themselves. himself Okay, um, I've, I've been on this path of personal development for, I don't know, say 15, 16 years. And it started with therapy, eventually the 12 steps, which is a whole different, <laughs> a whole different level of it, right? And it's, in many ways, I mean, the 12 steps like goes into that, the nitty gritty of these emotions, right? The, the fourth step inventory, which is yeah. I mean, backbreaking labor. Like really, when it's got a searching and fearless moral inventory, yeah, and you know, searching and fearless, like literally, so there's going to be someone who's done that who's going to hold you accountable to it. It's like, was it searching? Was it fearless? Like, did you go everywhere, everywhere with that? And it's sitting with someone who's going to pick apart, like, you know, start. Who are all the people you're upset at? How did you get them back? What did you do? What's your, where the places you're getting stuck? And let's let's list it out. Let's talk about it. You know, one of the, because I like is it has to be a written inventory, right? <laughs> There's something when you put some of these things. I remember I, my, one of my sponsors in recovery had a scoring system with me. It was like within every single relationship where there's res- resentment, there's going to be a character defect of mine that shows up. Right. Let's call it avoidance. Let's call it low self-esteem. Let's call it anger, rage. Whatever. There's going to be a character defect. Up. So I've gone through, let's say, 20 resentments. And then how many times, let's say I... Seven times I came across avoidance. Four times I came across anger. Twice I came across rage. Right? I mean, you're really putting, that may be an actual, <laughs> actual numbers. Right? I mean, you're putting real like, stuff in front of us that are very uncomfortable to, uh, to, to look at. Outside of the 12 steps, I, have, I, I don't have a parallel within um Judaism and not in the literature in the 
practice yeah. that I know of where this is um, where this is worked on. Meaning, the suggestions that someone is working on themselves almost comes from okay, if you're an addict and you're struggling, then go ahead and work on yourself so you don't relapse in the addiction. But when you're talking about an Evid Ivry, an indentured server who goes free after seven years, and you're saying like this is the relationship, one of the tracks of the relationship with God, then at some point or at all points, every person should be on this track yeah. of, of deep work of personal development going through one attribute at a time, which would really mean 42 attributes, if my math is correct, because it's seven yeah. times six. And, and, even, and even 49, because we could even work on the seventh one, and it has seven subsets. So, And that's right. why you have Sfira Sa'imer, the 49 days between Passover, which okay, is the Okay, so Exodus, that's a place. And okay, uh, Shavuos, so is- which is receiving the Torah. So that's what, that's precisely what we do. But I'm okay, only, so stand I'm, I'm not trying to contradict you. I'm, I'm probably furthering your point because if I were to fur, if I were to like say what the next thing you would say back to me is, all right, perfect case in point, 49 days between Passover and the receiving of the Torah, and you're supposed to work on an emotional attribute every single one of those days. How come I don't see that? How come I don't see people doing that? Right. One thing I have seen, you know, credit to Simon Jacobson is he did write yeah. a book. Yeah. Right where he goes through attribute by attribute over the um, right the 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 forty nine days, but um, but it doesn't take away from my larger point, and the larger point is that it it almost feels like this uh, someone who works on themselves. Like I've only ever seen it within the twelve steps as yeah. a as a deep practice of truly being honest about are flaws that we need to work on and working and working to actually eliminate them yeah to actually work to eliminate characteristics from our behavior i mean it's an actual practice yeah i mean this is a common uh complaint uh where do i hear it most often i mean you're not even saying it with any sense of like disillusionment you're just saying it as a fact but where do you hear people say it with real heartache people come from an observant background they end up in recovery and they 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 they'll say, I'm so angry that I don't see this level of sincere spiritual seeking in my community, and and it hurts them. It really hurts them. And my response. But when you to, say spiritual seeking, that's almost too broad for because spiritual seeking there is spiritual seeking. People are praying. People are maybe they're not doing it in the way it feels meaning, okay. but meaning there's a daily there's a daily practice of prayer, right? So. Okay, I've never prayed like I did. About it, true, true. But there's a daily practice of prayer. It exists. Who says it's so? One person means it. It could be meaning one person means it. One person does it. That itself is the complaint. The people are davening three times a day, and there's nothing spiritual about it. That's the complaint. I'm not saying it's right, but that can be something personal, right? But that can be something personal. I davened every single day for a bunch of years, and I didn't feel anything, and then I. Um, and then I went to meetings or I got into situations in my life and it said, humbly ask God to remove our shortcomings. It's like, what are you talking about? Literally pray, you know, and they say in recovery, hit your knees. Right. Right. Like literally pray and say, God, like I no longer want this attribute in my life. Like, please get rid of jealousy. I don't want to feel jealousy anymore. Can you please remove this from me? And people will actually do that and they'll be honest about their jealousy and they'll go into details on it and they'll ask for it to be removed. It's a, a practice and the 12 steps has 
formats, some written and some oral, in order to help work through some of these. So with prayer, there's a specific, there are people going to shul three times a day. Yeah. Right, I mean, the closest thing you, you came to it was Sphero, where it's mentioned, it's referenced, but there isn't anything that, okay, to say but, that people are praying, but they're not praying with intent, is very different than saying people are, like there isn't even this conversation <laughs> around working on emotions. It sounds so bizarre. When I started going to therapy, uh -huh. the way I was mocked, it's like, what, what are you doing? Like, what's wrong with you, you know? But but I want to get to actually addressing this complaint because you, right. you're in a stable place in life. I don't think this, this question is keeping you up at night, but I know no, many no, no. people that it does, it torments them. This question torments them. Okay. It's not a joke. So go there. It really pains a lot of people. It makes them very, very angry and, and resentful. They could put it on their fourth step list of resentments. But I, I shouldn't make <laughs> jokes. But um, That's true. it's a real question. Like, how come I, you know, I, I, I was given a religious training, a religious upbringing, religious schooling, and, and, and they, they're saying God. They're, they're talking about God, but real, sincere, personal practice of, of any type of um, spiritual um, growth. It just, it, it, you know, I saw ritual. I saw ritual observance. I, I didn't see personal spiritual growth. That's the common complaint. And, and the people who have this complaint are really heartbroken about it. They're really heartbroken about it. I mean, right. I remember a guy crying to me and saying I how angry he was that he had to find God in a 12-step meeting. Like, it made him angry. He didn't, he didn't deny the fact that's where he uncovered his relationship with God, but he, it made him angry. Like, you know, why did I, I have to wait once this long? Yeah, I once heard you um, say this. I actually remember specific words. It was a few years ago, and it probably... I was more in that place, so it it it, uh, it hit me strongly. Where you said, "If I hear one more story of someone who found out about God in a church basement after going through the yeshiva system, you know, yeah. I I, I yeah. don't know what I'm going to do." However, you ended that sentence. Yeah, yeah. So, but what's the response to it? Because you know, last yeah. time we spoke, you said something that I found very interesting. You said. And I'm going to throw it back at you. I'm going to haunt you with this. You said, Ellie Nash, you said that you can kind of understand now why a community might not handle child sexual abuse well, and you're not as indignant about the mishandling of it. You still identify it as being mishandled, but you're not as indignant about how it's mishandled because you understand the reasons why it would be really difficult to handle well. Did I accurately? Right, to clarify it, I, right, I don't know if indignant, I don't know if I'm not as indignant, I'm not as confused You are by as it. indignant about the uh, act, obviously. You're right. Not, you're not mitigating the act, but you're saying when the community has to respond to what happened and they really drop the ball, you you described it as like a, matur a, mat a maturity that you have that you're like, okay, I still think they're dropping the ball, but I have a little bit more sympathy about why they're dropping the ball. 
Right. So the, the frustration previously was how can this community be so much more clueless than any other community? Right. Like, how is it, how is it that in um, the Orthodox Jewish community and as well in the Catholic Church, right, they actually align, I don't know if you know this, in the fight against child sex abuse, like New York State, some of the laws, everything else, there is a financial union between the Catholic Church and some Orthodox Jewish institutions on this point. And um, how, how could it be that way, right? How could it be that some religious places are getting confused over something as child sex abuse when they should be more godly? Right. And my perspective today is that they're not worse than anyone else. It's because of the communal aspect, there's a familial aspect, and anywhere in the world, there's confusion over how to handle incest cases. And within a community, every case has the same dynamics as an incest case. Right. So I'm as clear about how to handle it and what we must do, but I'm not any more shocked. Like, how could it be in this community? It's right. literally, it's, it's human nature. Right. So I'm recalling that, and I'm saying, similarly, a person shouldn't be so shocked when they discover earnest spiritual practices being implemented in a 12-step meeting, and they go back and they compare that to the lack thereof in their religious community. And, and, and I think it's a very apt comparison. Um, you, you described the reason for the mishandling of these cases as being, well, you just said it, that incest cases are always complex. It's always hard to make it a black and white issue of, you know, calling out the, the this person is the villain because you're related to that person. It's always very, you know, uh, complex. It's, uh, it's more of a... There's more, there's more conflict. And you said you have a tight-knit community, so it's just more confusing. Right. It's more, more of a – there's a lot of inherent uh, conflicts of interest going on, and that's just the reality. Um, okay, so here's what I would say. A 12-step meeting is a fairly homogenous group. They're going to say, what are you talking about? It's a homogenous group. You go into a 12-step meeting, you have people of all races and all ages and all economic levels and all backgrounds. And how, how, you, how can you say it's, an, it's a homogenous group? Well, I mean, it's homogenous in the sense that everyone there showed up at least the first time they showed up because they just had the worst day of their life. <laughs> they all hit rock bottom. and they Related to the same... The same substance or behavior. Yeah, and if it's a 12-step fellowship, so they're going to a specific fellowship that is categorized by the fact that their rock bottom is related to a specific drug of choice. That's right. So it's a highly selective group. You have a bunch of people who were forced to a point of, of, of earnestness that is not reflected in the general population. Now, you talk about a community, whether it's a, a, a group of religious Jews in Brooklyn or any sizable community. When you're talking about a sample size that large, you have a cross-section. 
you have people whose lives are going well. You have people whose lives are not going well. You have people who have better coping skills. People who have worse coping skills. You have people who have uh, who are more emotionally balanced. People who are less emotionally balanced. People who are going through stress. People who are not going through stress. You have all types of different people in a in a in a community. Communities are not homogenous. I accept that. Okay, so I here, so, my so hear what I'm saying. You walk into a, a room full of people who all they have in common is the same zip code. Okay, okay. Maybe you're going to say, it's not just they live in the same zip code. They're, they're all from the same background. Yeah, but a cultural background. Okay, fine. So they all get the same jokes. They all, they all have the same in-references. But they don't have the same life story, and they're not all in the same place in their journey. They're not all at that post rock bottom place yet. And you want to talk to a room full of Jews who are sitting in the same shul and speak to them all as if they all are ready to hear such a serious and earnest message. Well, it's it's just it's not gonna happen. So I I I I, I like to point out <laughs> that when you look at your your 12-step meeting and you're like wow this is the way the world should be you have to understand every one of those people got there at the end of a very arduous process you're seeing them after they arrived and most people will not even arrive and even those same people who have arrived if you would have met them a week earlier they hadn't yet arrived <laughs> right okay so uh, I, I just want to say to you, if you have a complaint, how come I don't see anything like the seriousness of of, of, of spiritual self-development uh, that I see in 12-step meetings? How come I don't see that in the yeshivas? You know what? If you could make a yeshiva only for people who have lost everything and who have surrendered and have no are no longer arguing and no longer talking back and no longer trying to make any excuses for themselves and you make a yeshiva just for those people I don't think you'd have any children in that yeshiva by the way okay you would make a yeshiva just for people who have hit rock bottom and are ready to just take direction okay so then you would have a similar experience in that yeshiva as you, as you do in 12 step meetings I accept what you're saying, but I think my question still stands, and I'll tell you why. Um, have you heard uh, the difference between ritual and spiritual? You heard, you heard this? The ritual difference is SPI. Yeah, spiritual and ritual are the same letters, okay. except for three. SPI, right? Specific Purposeful Intent. Okay. So, I'm not sure where I heard it. Amazingly, I only heard it recently. But, okay, so there's a ritual of prayer mm. and the person's complaint when they're bringing it to you is that how come I don't see spiritual prayer okay right. because when right you want that specific purposeful intent that you're seeing in 12-step meetings great get me any of these you, you can have a minion of those people they exist go to JRC on a, a for their annual convention and you'll see that because suddenly they're davening with it and if those same people I don't even want to say 10 days before Put them together 20 or 30 years later when they're not struggling in the same way and they won't have the same specific purposeful intent for that uh, for that prayer. My question is, where is the ritual? Not where is the spiritual. Where is the ritual of 
a practice of personal development? Where do we even see it? It's all there. But that 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 I'm tell surprised me. you even asking. Tell me why. I'm surprised Where you even I, asked What did me I that. miss? Well, you you talk well, like for instance, like uh, searching fearless moral inventory. Okay, which is a fourth step, which is something that it's a well. Some people say that you do the steps more than once in a lifetime, but others would say it's a you do it once in a lifetime because. Uh, you have a maintenance inventory in step 10, which is a daily inventory. So we have the same thing. We have a, 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 a an inventory that you do once in a while, like at the end of the year in, in the month of Elul, Cheshben, the month of accounting, when you get ready for the high holidays. And then every single night you have Kriyashma Shalalamita, you have the bedtime Shema. And that's, that's a, a daily inventory. We have the ritual for all this stuff. Okay, you're right. I stand corrected. You're right. It's and there. you mentioned the 49 days of counting the Omer, which is also the ritual for it. We have the rituals in place for all of this stuff. What's the SPI right. I, that you put in front of rituals? Specific, to make specific purposeful intent. Specific purposeful intent. Okay. So the specific purposeful intent is the part that may be lacking because it's harder to teach. Now, if I can pull you back into the Seicha, Ali, I think that might even be <laughs> the third explanation of Lifnehem. You said, just to you recap, said, people can't remember an hour ago, but the first explanation of Lifnehem means in before front of Jewish, Jewish judges. If you have a dispute with a Jew, you got to go to a rabbinic court. The second thing of Lifnehem was put it into Make them. it make sense. Make it make sense. Yeah. And what's that? Okay. So what's the third one? The, um, it should be internalized in a very d deep way, not just their mind, right? Lifnehem before them, that it should make sense. In their essence, right? In their, they should internalize it. It should be internalized. It should affect, may a way to say that it should affect all of them. That the laws shouldn't be, and you gave, actually gave a great example. I'm glad you did of the whole Evid Ivry, which sounded like a side note, is that's one way to make it very internal. And actually, it's no mistake that the, that explanation comes from a Hasidic master, right? The Alter Rebbe. He's the one who says that what does lifnehem mean, which literally translated translated as before them. It's very similar to a word lipnimiusam, which means to be internalized. Yeah. Or into in, their internal. Insides. So he's yeah. right. And you showed us how we can take a very simple, uh, simple seeming line in the Torah about an indentured servant which seems archaic. who serves for six years and becomes free on the seventh and it's, right. it seems and makes like it very it relevant no relevance to our lives today uh, it's relevant it's personal and it's on a on the deepest level mm -hmm. okay so okay what was the fourth explanation of lifnehem yeah it was a, it wasn't like so much lifnehem but it was this uh, a play on the word on tasim Right, that should be placed before them is the word sasim, which is treasure, I believe. So that was a. That was the, the, the fourth one, that there's some sort of, I don't know, treasure that's being placed in front of them. And the fact that it's a treasure, it should awaken and inspire them. That's to do with Panemia Satira, right? I believe so, yeah. Okay. I mean, I don't have the text. You have the book in front of you. But uh, as I recall, it's, uh, you know, there's the, 
the plain I'll meaning. I'll read it in Yiddish. You wanted, you, you, you wanted to get me last uh, time to read it. It says, as tasim is from sima, eitzer. Thus, behaltene the primius un sasim from Torah, un sasim the Torah is dachma er, dem sasim un primius from the neshama. It was great. How many people on this podcast heard you reading Yiddish before? <laughs> there you go. Probably not too many, but yeah. it's uh, everything. We put everything. Uh, we put everything out there. That's the beauty. <laughs> we, don't, of we don't censor this. anything. <laughs> no, you want to know something, Chase? Yeah. I'll tell you something crazy. I've thought about this. You can go. Anyone can go. They want to go a Buddhist meditation, and anyone can walk in from all walks of life. Right, a Buddhist meditation. Like this is not Tyler who uh, helps me with the podcast. Fine gentleman, not a Jewish fella. He said to me after uh, editing the last talk, he said, "I'm really starting to enjoy the conversations between you and Chase. I think that our conversations, if people don't get lost, and if you pull me back from talking in too much cultural lingo, as you have a few times, yeah, um, if people can get to the." understanding of it i think this stuff is very relevant and very meaningful to everyone there's buddhist meditations yeah, there should sure. be hasidic meditations hasidic classes hasidic philosophy that everyone can benefit from this has nothing sure. to do with uh news. so Absolutely. I, I hope that I, agree. I, I hope that i hope that many of my listeners who um ellie the only are people who are going to be offended well. by you reading yiddish words are jews <laughs> 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 yeah. By the way, you talk about like finding like the hidden Jews. That's how we started. You want to find the hidden right. Jews, like the guy who's most offended by your outward display of your Judaism. That's that's the Jew. It's a very Jewish thing to uh, to be. Okay. You know, the I was going to say about, if they get offended, it's fine because we're on a search to find a bunch you know, more. You so. know, Rabbi, the story, Rabbi yeah. Doctor Torsky, all of a Shalom was on a plane and some lady started yelling at him like how could you be so backward and you make all of us jews look terrible with your your old-fashioned ways and he says ma'am i think you're mistaken i'm amish she's like oh i'm so sorry i really respect your people for preserving your traditions and it's so amazing what you do he says no i'm really am i really am jewish but i just want to point out the hypocrisy all right they i I agree with it, unfortunately. I understand it. Yeah. Okay, so we have these four um, translations. Really, it's three. The way they break it out is three, but I think it adds to it with this language of uh, the treasure, it being a treasure that's placed in front of that can affect on a deep internal way. Yeah. Okay, so those are the ways. And uh, the question introduced here is all explanations for it should have a connection in some way to two things. A, to, uh, did you give a better term than legal laws? Um, legalistic laws um, I'd say civil laws let's use civil laws yeah yeah I mean okay so yeah. then the the technical term is statutes I think but that doesn't mean anything to anyone okay let's call it civil laws is a there's the three um translations of this word right this bizarre language that these laws should be placed before them should connect to civil laws, number one, and number two, to each other. Okay. That's the... Because the verse said you should take these laws, specific types of laws, these civil laws, and you should place them before them, which means these 
different explanations that we gave. And now we're under, trying to understand how those different explanations all connect to each other. And plus, why do they specifically connect to the idea of civil laws as opposed exactly. to ritual laws? Right. Great. So, okay. So obviously the first and one And everyone is should understand understood. that we've covered the first two paragraphs of the Sikha now. <laughs> we're going to go in. We'll start moving a little bit quicker. So I have to get to Rudy Rachman's... Uh, we were never lost event. Okay, so but we we should anyway. We should make it palatable for the um, for the for the listener. So, in terms of, um, but by the way, this is the way a sicha should be learned. I think. Yes, shouldn't rush it. You know, shouldn't rush it. This is I'm, how you I'm make it practical. I'm just trying to have rachmonis, which is Jewish for uh, pity, on the listeners. If you and I were just sitting, hanging out. We can learn as slowly as we want to, but... But that's what we're doing. That's the whole In Search of More premise. That is what we're doing. We're just turning the cameras on. Oh. <laughs> so we're giving them like a fly-on-the-wall experience. Exactly. We're giving them a fly-on-the-wall experience. Okay. That's all, this, that's all this is because then otherwise I have to pretend to have answers. Mm-hmm. So okay. I don't want to be forced <laughs> into okay, a so situation where I have to pretend... We're going to be real. Let's be I don't real. Wanna, I don't want to... I don't want to be in that situation. Okay, so we have these three um, explanations or definitions of the, the term described, and we want to understand what the link is between them and between these civil kind of laws. So obviously, to tell someone to what it means is, right, it's an instruction. It's something you may not know otherwise. I'm going to instruct you to go to civil courts, uh, to go to Jewish courts for civil laws, that's the only time we would even think that we shouldn't, right? We're not going to think about it for ritual laws. We're not going to think ab- about it for uh, laws between man and God, right? Should, uh, should you, I go you to a civil court? You wouldn't go to a, a non-Jewish authority to ask if something is kosher. Exactly. But so you meaning may we don't think, need anyone telling us that. Right, but we you may, may think, think for a civil dispute to go to non-Jewish authorities. So right, here they handle comes, those types of things. You you go to the you go to the circuit court and you say I have a law uh, about kashrus to determine that like, we don't deal with kashrus. But if you say uh, I uh, this guy uh, drove his car onto my lawn and uh, ruined my lawn, I want to deal with that. I want to sue him. Okay, we deal with that stuff. Right, a hundred percent. Okay. So, so it makes sense that God would tell Moses, instruct them, because they may not know otherwise. Right. But to instruct them to make it make sense, I mean, of course, civil laws, you make it make sense. Right? I mean, there's nothing to, there's nothing to, to add there. And okay. for it to, um, and same with like a deep internal, like, experience. Okay, so, so good. You have the knowledge of this, there's no specific instruction that seems to be added by saying that these specific kind of laws should be placed before them. Okay, so these are the these are the questions, right? This is the foundation. In classic fashion, we'll take something in the Torah on the Torah portion. Either use just the term, either use just that itself, or go into others who've explained what it says and then ask a series of questions and then the explanation tie everything together. So this is a central, the foundational um, question for this uh, sicha. So instead of taking everyone through um, step by step of it, can we, can we deliver them? Can we deliver the answer to them? What, what is the explanation to connect? Okay, let's really quick give them the basic, basic, basic um, 
teaching of the three types of Torah laws? Because I think that's important for giving to, for delivering the punchline. Um, so we have civil laws, right? Which you mentioned before, which the, you, know, you said the Hebrew word in the verse is mishpatim. Okay, the, and, have, and as you explained, those laws are laws that you would find equivalent or parallel types of laws in other legal systems. Correct. Okay. And then you have ritual laws, right, which keep the Sabbath. Okay. okay. Celebrate this holiday. Okay, good. I, right. I wouldn't have known it, but... Eat matzah once you on say Passover. It, it makes sense. Right. Okay, I, I see the connection. I want to come, it up, come up with it on my own, but now that you say it, okay, I get it. Right. Right, and then... So that's, that's the second, second category. category. Okay. And then the third category are these laws that just don't seem to make any sense at all. Right. Don't, even uh, after you tell me. Yeah, I like don't what's even the understand. connection? It just seems to be uh, arbitrary, sometimes bizarre. Um, I don't know if most people know that Jews don't wear wool and linen, for example. It's right. just a bizarre thing. Or don't, maybe some of this makes sense, but don't graft trees together. Right. What's wrong with that? Why is that a problem? Yeah. Yeah. There are, a number of laws that are just okay they're there but i have no idea why they're there where does kosher did you ask me category? that on purpose no you asked that as an innocent question yeah it just popped into my head that's so funny um it's very intriguing it's rashi mentions kosher as an example of such a law that makes no sense It, it's interesting because, uh, especially in modernity, after the Enlightenment, when people were seeking rational explanations for mitzvahs, um, you know, a lot of ink has been spent explaining why the laws of Kashrus would have been advantageous for the ancient Israelites from a health or hygiene perspective. And... Uh, yeah, Rashi, drawing from the from the uh, the sages of the Talmud, says that Kashrus actually has no rational basis. Fascinating. Yeah. Right. It feels like it makes sense. It feels like it does, but it doesn't actually. The reason I thought of it was because I was speaking to um, uh, someone this afternoon, and I communicated the law of not benefiting from milk and meat. Right, that someone not only would not allowed to eat it, but not even allowed to benefit it. You can't benefit from it. You can't even right. give it to a Jewish person. Can't even give it to their dog or to sell it. Right. In a business transaction, right. they can't benefit in any way from it, which it doesn't away. seem to make right. Right, doesn't seem to make any sense. Like even if that's where I, that's actually where the question came from. Like maybe there's a part of Jewish of kosher that doesn't make sense. Rashi, who's a, one of the most famous um, commentators on the Torah, says that this isn't the this this goes in the category of not making sense at all. Okay, yep. so we have those three, those three laws, like wool and linen, which you mentioned. He also mentions, and and that makes sense that it doesn't make sense. In other words, right? You say don't mix wool and linen together in a single uh, fabric. Like, yeah, I get that. Like, I mean, I get that. I don't get that. I it, it's obvious that that's irrational or doesn't conform to the type of rationale that I'm used to. Um, I don't want to call it actually irrational, but it, not something a human intellect can, can relate to. But Kashras 
sounds like something you could probably explain rationally, but no, you can't. Right. We do it and, just because. Right. And you see the danger also because once you go into explaining it rationally, like let's say you say for health reasons, then I say, okay, for health reasons, uh, a uh, organic cheeseburger is much healthier than a kosher right. lollipop. Right. Right. So the... Okay, I, so you wanted to give yeah. that background before you explained the... Yeah. So I guess I'll throw it back to you like this, and I'll say um, these laws are all divine laws. They're all laws from God. But some of them sound like laws that people also have come up with. Sure. Sure. Yeah. To the extent where you might be dealing with a, per a particular case and you might go to a court that is based on man-made law and not think that it's a problem because this type of case is the kind of case that man-made laws deal with. I'm not going to go yeah, to the secular like... court to ask them things about ritual law. that They don't deal with that stuff, but I, I might go to them about something that they do deal with. Yeah, a concept of statute of limitations, for example, is something we came up with. Doesn't sound so different from only use six years to pay back and not a seventh. Okay. And then you have the obvious ones, like don't kill, don't steal. Right. right. Okay. So it's almost a rhetorical question, but where do we require, where is greater uh, spiritual consciousness required when dealing with something which is inherently a ritual or with something that also makes sense on a human level so right so being that i learned this seems so obvious it's in the, right it seems so obvious but without it i would have made the mistake and said greater spiritual consciousness is necessary in a ritual. But the truth of the matter is that it's easy to attain. When you're praying, when you're uh, celebrating a holiday, for there to be spiritual consciousness, of course, it was only introduced because of spirit, right? Because of God. Um, whereas with a law, you say maybe it wasn't introduced because of God. Maybe it was introduced uh, bec because of common sense. Not only maybe, it would have been. <laughs> it literally would have been. Many of these laws have been. And could could be like it, it it makes sense, but it's specifically because of that that there's um, a spiritual consciousness necessary. Right. I Meaning there has to be more work to arrive at that place of this too is God's law. Right. In other words, there's two modes of approaching the law, and they're they're both real they, they we can't deny that they exist i mean they're part of the human experience one mode is where i study god's law and i say yeah i agree with that <laughs> that that, that, right. that that one's good uh, that uh. and the other is the other mode is you study god's law and you say I mean, at the very least, you say, 
I, I don't get this at all. Or in some cases, you might even say, I'm uncomfortable with this. This is this does not fit my sensibilities. It doesn't fit my worldview. Like the okay, you know, like I'll accept it on faith, but I'm not really uh, intellectually. I'm not. I'm not very aligned with this. Right. Okay. We're saying that that second mode is actually a good place to be in. <laughs> it sounds it sounds like such a awful place to be. It sounds like it's full of doubt and conflict and confusion, but we're saying it's actually a good place to be in because ultimately it's 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 humble. It's admitting that I can't fathom the infinite. God's law is infinite as he is because his wisdom as infinite is infinite as he is and I can't wrap my head around it. And so I humbly accept the fact that whatever makes sense to me is 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 a bonus but really ultimately it doesn't Wait. doesn't need my approval. But if you think about it from this perspective, the entry point for the system falling apart exists specifically because there are some laws which make sense. Right. I'll, I'll make that um, right. I'll make that make sense. So imagine there it couldn't be, but imagine there was, I mean, I mean, it could be, but it couldn't be in the way we understand the world that God could make rules for the Jews and all of them don't make any sense because he also had to have rules for the rest of the world. For example, like established courts of law and um, other things, just do not kill, do not steal, just for the basic functioning of society. So there were going to be certain things that God was going to tell us that also made sense. But hypothetically well, I mean, just speaking... To, just to clarify, you're referring to the fact that, and this is a difficult concept for a lot of people to grasp, Judaism does not, does not think that all people have to become Jews in order to fulfill their purpose and to please God and to live a good life. There are two different, but there there are two different tracks of law. So within Torah, there are laws for non-Jews, but that those laws don't require the non-Jews to become Jewish. And they're called the seven Noahide laws for the descendants of Noah, which after the flood, everyone's a descendant of Noah, the survivor of the flood. And and all of those laws are laws that are basically for the best maintenance of a, of a peaceful society. So but it's funny you mentioned this because it came up in my conversation this afternoon. I mentioned with a healer um, from Afghanistan who I spoke with, or Spanish from Afghanistan. And he had mentioned that I asked him about his current, you know, religious views. And he said, you know, he said, the way I look at monotheism today is that a bunch of people stood in a pool and said, this section is mine and this section makes sense. So I told him that's not exactly Judaism's way. Judaism recognizes the validity of the whole pool as long as it's monotheistic. The, the whole pool is we're good with. We're just saying that we're responsi responsible and we're chosen a certain path in order for the rest of the pool, kind of the water to be clean in it. So we said, hey, we're going to be a filtration system here. Right. Or the analogy I gave, which right. I borrowed from Rudy Rachman, was uh, an immune system which I thought was appropriate, that the Jews agreed and they chose to be the immune system for the world, 
We're going to prevent or heal what doesn't uh, what doesn't function, what's not no. functioning, or things don't break down. But, which, but going back to what you're saying, it it, it he it, was shocked by the way. The reason he, he was shocked, he was shocked by that, like, and he knows he's a historian. He can take you from five thousand years ago till today. Every every single religion and know, knowing about it and he, the prophets he never heard and such the a concept. history was shocked because it's it's i think it's only judaism i don't think there's another religion that's interesting which does not have um an opinion outside of these seven noahide laws on how someone should live like they're not saying people should be jewish that right. by like no don't we don't encourage it we don't right Chase it. We don't. Okay, but, but going we don't back even to use what, reverse psychology. Going back to what you were saying, <laughs> to try to get people okay, on board. But going back to what you're saying, in theory, God could have given the the seven Noahide laws for for all mankind, right? And then the Torah for the Jewish people, which is 613 commandments. In theory, at least, they could have all been ritual laws that don't make sense. Correct. And theoretically speaking, in that theory, it would be very difficult for the system to fall apart. If there were all those, because you can't where's even the begin entry? To question it. Right, where's the entry point to start getting someone to dance with it? The whole thing doesn't make There's sense a, to begin with, so where are you going to start right. questioning it? Yeah, so, right, exactly. So where the entry point is for the whole system to fall apart is specifically within these laws that exist specifically within these laws that make sense or could make sense because there are some people who it doesn't make sense not to murder but it, where it could make sense um, it's specifically in those laws that suddenly we say oh that makes sense and then let me start um, dancing with it I'll do these things that make sense not those things like this is where so if would this be the reason why it was specifically these ones that needed to be um, placed in front of them in this way, like that term it said, like make sure the civil laws are placed in front of them, that we let them know that it should be in civil courts. We let them know that it has to make sense. We let them know that it has to be deeply internalized. It's because if we don't get it here, like this is where the system can fall apart. Is that the... Yeah, but even the way you're describing it sounds more like... Mm. Your your description of it is it's it's correct, but it, it, there's something more. There's there's much more to it because the way you're you the way you're saying it is like in order to preserve the integrity of the system, and you know there's something at least me personally that bristles at that like I, I almost it elicits a contrarian response in me like well if the purpose of a system is to preserve itself that's the first system i want to dismantle so <laughs> so, so use a different word besides for system but yeah yeah so well you can use a different word for system but you're still saying the same thing i i i would so how would you say it i would have to look at it from a totally different perspective. I have to say like this. There's something that from my connection to my source, 
is is at risk when dealing with how my source has addressed certain practical aspects of my life. And therefore, I need to be extra sensitive in those areas. And this is specifically the, and these these areas are the civil laws, the ones that make sense to bring an added level of sensitivity. Or I would even say not just these laws that make sense, but even any law that has an aspect of it that happens to make sense. Because it's not just these laws. There, there are, look, when you start learning Chassidus, you learn about esoteric concepts in a way, especially Chassidus Chabad, where the whole purpose of it is to break down lofty concepts that normally you could just, you could, you could only relate to on a basis of faith, and it breaks it down until you could wrap your head around it to some degree. So when you learn Chassidus, you start having an intellectual appreciation even of esoteric ideas. And, and, and therein lies a danger. Like, yeah. Right, meaning if you did what you did with the um, law about the indentured servant, yeah. then you can do this on every line in the Torah, even the stuff that don't make sense. You'll make something make sense about wool and linen. And by the not way, not being worn, right? We had mentioned that wool and linen. By the way, be there, worn. Are, there are teachings in Chassidus that do explain it. They do explain it that flax is veg, vegetative and the wool is animal, and their 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 chesed and their gvura, the the kindness and the severity, and it's Cain and it's Abel, and you can't mix the two, different energies. But oh, you, so maybe this is the the point that all can be explained. Even right, that's what I'm saying. Maybe this is the point is to go through all the three different kind of laws. And I'm not saying this from like having learned it and um, and this is what I understood. I'm saying this fresh now, that maybe this is the point, that there are three types of laws and every single one, the categories, we should seek to make sense and make it as obvious as do not kill, do not steal, right? Work through the process of making it make sense. But at the same time, don't forget the source so that um, if so that using your words, we're sufficiently sensitive to our connection to God so that it doesn't become fractured as we make it make sense. So in other words, we're going through a process that has a hazard and we're making everything make sense. Yes. Which is and dangerous. we're internalizing everything, which is, which very, is very dangerous. dangerous. Which because is as why, we make it make sense, let me interject and say, there are many approaches that would say, we're not going to do that, or only very special people are allowed to do that, because it's dangerous. It's dangerous to make things make sense. Yes. Right. Once we start giving explanations for it, it's like the whole system can fall apart. Well, I don't <laughs> care about the system. You're going to start <laughs> rationalizing away essential connections to your source. Once you start rationalizing your connection to your source, who is ultimately unknowable, and you're going to try to make everything about your source knowable, you're going to start losing those connections, and uh, you're going to end up uh, isolated. You're going to end up uh, divorced from your true self, divorced from your purpose, 
So the, so the rationalization the, game is very dangerous. So is is this the teaching here? Is this the teaching of the Sikha that we should strive to understand everything just as we understand do not kill? We should go about it in the same way, but at the same time, um, make it rock solid in the form of the connection to its source that as we're making it make sense, there still is no risk. And yes, but yes, but I want to ask you a question that will force you to clarify this because you're good. saying it very nicely. And if I didn't challenge it, we could just leave it alone. We could tie it up in a nice bow and be done. But I want you to explain to me if after all, the point is to get to that, that, that faith that God is unknowable and his will is unknowable, then why do we even go through a process of trying to know? I, th I think there's a certain um, inspiration and excitement and joy, um, more than internalization, a, um, it, it uh, enlivens us in a much more real way. So that's the benefit of it, right? It has a hazard, but the benefit is, is that as we get it, we're like, now there's excitement. So imagine someone... Um, you know, imagine someone thousands of years ago who had this concept of an all-knowing God and they're just, how can God know everything? I mean, like, this is crazy. Someone someone can retain so much information. Someone can know the beginning of times, the end of time. Like, how can this make sense? Can see, can hear. And for a few moments, they're planted into, and they struggle with this concept, but they say, okay, it's like, it's at the limits of my ability. Right. They don't have to be and from thousands suddenly, of years ago. They could be from... Uh you know, 200, 150, 100 years ago. That's true. Yeah. That's true. And then they're thrown into 2023. Yeah. Where literally everything is known by Google or Facebook. Yeah. Everything is recorded. Everything can be, um, you know, segmented and analyzed and researched right. and, you know. And you say, oh, wow. Like for, for, for a moment, they get this. They could have struggled with this their whole life. Right. Like this concept was so difficult to understand. And suddenly they get dropped into 2023. Like, oh my goodness, this makes so much sense. There would be, um, it would elicit a tremendous joy and excitement from being able to understand something that until now they had to accept on, on sheer faith. <laughs> you know, you remind me of, there were, uh, in, 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 back in Brooklyn, in Crown Heights in 770, a couple of chassidim from, from the old country, from Russia, and uh, so they came over to America, and they were they were studying, and they they were studying the book called Lakutei Torah, which is Hasidic discourses from the Alter Rebbe, first Chabad Rebbe. And there's a place where it mentions, and it mentions it as a as a parable for something else. It says Kiyadua, as it's known, that the wor the world, the earth, is two thirds water. So they read that, and one of them said to the other. To the world is two thirds water. Two thirds water. Hold on a second. I lived in Russia. I saw a bunch of land. I came to America. I saw a bunch of land. Like, I, okay, there is some water, you know, they're, 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 but two thirds water. <laughs> so the other one says, 
I guess it's one of those things you just got to take on faith. <laughs> right. The Altarebbe says, to state in Lukut what can you do? It says in Lukut the world is two-thirds water. Okay. It's one of those things you have to right. take on faith. Right. Okay. And when they find out 70% of, 70 of the earth is water. Yeah. <sighs> right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. So there's certain. Is, so is that? But if I guess those guys would uh, see a satellite picture of the world and have that satellite show them, here's Russia where you lived, here's New York where you live now, and look at all right. the water around it, they'd be like, and the wow. beach goes pretty far. It doesn't look like it's going so far. Because but that that would be cool. That would be really cool. Be like they were ready to take it on yeah. faith. They were they were they were ready to take it on faith. But when you see it, wow, that's so inspiring. Right, so there's it's a there's a beautiful opportunity to excite all of us, for lack of a better word, to excite all of us by delving into the specifics. But we still need to be sensitive to the protections as we go and make sense of it, because this is the most vulnerable um, area of attack on the relationship with God. Making right. it make sense. That's right. So <laughs> that's the that's the dilemma. It's so risky. We almost we almost might want to just avoid the whole thing. And yet, it's so By the way, valuable. There are many who do, and some people there are do. Many who do. No, I'm thinking of someone who's inspired me tremendously. Who. Um, who's helped me a lot, my personal life, personal development, and he's somewhat of a, a, a spiritual teacher, um, probably most influenced, um, I'd say probably most influenced by Buddhist-style teachings, but I would say it's like the style, right? The like the Many of it is Jewish also. Like someone said, Tadin Steinzal, it's like, what do I need Judaism for? I found these teachings everywhere else. You know, so he said, but if you're encountering truth, wouldn't you find it everywhere else? Right? Like, why wouldn't, why wouldn't you find so much of this everywhere else? So I'm talking about the very beautiful aspects um, of it, which teaches a, a certain practice of um, meditation, surrender, letting go, um, like all of those. And he's a, a wonderful person, and I would consider him a balaveda as well, to use that term, someone who deeply, deeply works in himself. And you see him from six months to a year, like changing in front of you, like a person physically transforming in front of you. And I'm extremely inspired by him. And when um, one of the things that he often talks about is the limitations of the mind. So, mm -hmm. at, but he says it in a way like, um, the mind is limited, so almost don't go there. Which has its, as we're saying, it has its value and it's helped him. And I understand the mind is limited, like easy does it. But what you're saying, like, I'll share this with him. I'll actually share this with him. Saying like, no, this like Chabad Chassidus is taking it a step way further. Yes, the mind is limited, but go there anyway. Because that's how you're going to get all of you in this process. I'm going to say all of you, as much of you as possible. That's, that, that, you just nailed it. Those three words. All of you. That's it. P people, people have asked me many times. I mean, they've asked me enough times that I'm ready with an answer when it's asked because it's come up enough. Um, 
well, at the end of the day, God is unknowable, so what's the point of learning all this stuff? Right. I mean, the kind of stuff that I teach, that question, uh, it comes up often. So God is unknowable, what's the point of learning this stuff? And the answer that, I mean, I hope it hasn't become so second nature that uh, it's no longer... Uh, coming from a sincere place. I think it's still coming from a sincere place. I think I'm still congruent with, with these words. Uh, let me say it now and see if it feels like I'm just quoting myself. That's the worst, by the way. And you fall into a trap where you're just yeah, quoting oh, yeah. yourself. And you know what I mean, Ellie, because you speak all the time. And you know when you're just quoting yourself. Like, well, a hundred times ago, I was pretty damn inspired when I said this. But now it's just because it sounds good. You know? right. And then you got to stop saying that thing it's for a It while. sounds good. It's because you've said it. It's like the tongue yeah. moves in that way already. Yeah. It's like you got to yeah. go away from it and come back to it when you mean it again. But here's the answer. How much of infinity is it even possible to understand? Mathematically, what's the answer to that? Nothing. Nothing. Because any fraction of infinity is, there's no such thing as a fraction of the infinite. So right. whether you understand one thing or a million things about infinity, it's the same. It's nothing. So it's not how much of God can I understand. That's not the metric. It's how much of my understanding is preoccupied with the knowledge of God. See, my mind is finite, as we all agree. And so there's a certain amount of my mind that I devote to business, a certain amount of my mind that I devote to uh, personal relationships, a certain amount of my mind that I'm devoting to my hobbies, and then there's a certain amount of my mind that I devote to spiritual awakening. What we're saying here is that ultimately the goal is that a hundred percent of my mind and therefore a hundred percent of my being should be devoted to spiritual awakening. Now within spiritual awakening, there can be a place for business and social relationships and a hobby and all types of other things, because when you're serving the infinite, there are many different facets through which that gets expressed. But, but it's all going to the same direction. It ultimately is all about knowledge of, of God. So it's not how much right. of God do I understand. It's how much of my mental capacity am I devoting to the understanding of God? How much of me uh, is invested in this relationship? Not how much of him <laughs> have, I, have I apprehended. How much of me is invested in the relationship with him? So interesting. So someone asked me, how do I balance? How do I, how do I balance work, the podcast, my family? I said, I don't. And I, I don't try to, but they're all the same thing. They're all going in the same direction. They're all moving to the same place. So that's what you're saying. At the end of the day, there's one. So if it happens to be, it's completely meaningless to me at this point. Whether, like as far as a, a productive work day, whether at 3 p.m. I have a call with someone who's struggling with addiction or at 3 p.m. I have a call with someone who wants to work for us or buy some product or partner with us or, you know, or do business with us in some way. It's all, it's all work at this point. I don't say, okay, this is work and this is, it's all my work. It's all what I, what I have to do, just like, right. right? 
just like my children and, every, and, and everything else. The balance is more, am I doing or am I resting to do more? So even the rest becomes part of that. That's, the, that's what you're saying, is that all of it is going the same direction. So a couple of years ago, and maybe this makes it, you know, we said, I'm going to make it make it make sense for me. We said there are people who could have made it make sense if they're teachers in the first three minutes of this discussion, not of our discussion, but a discussion of the Sikha. So make it make sense for me. Um, you did a, um, a series a couple of years ago on Jewish meditation, right? Where you walked, if I remember correctly, where you walked people through a, a meditation. You're going to talk through something. And I don't know if you said this then, but it was certainly communicated to me by the way you did it, is what's the most common um, meditation practices that are seen when they're popping up all over the place? And there's a lot of people in, um, in 12 Steps, we spoke about that. It says, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God, praying only for the knowledge of God's will for us and the power to carry that out. Right, so that's step 11 in, of the 12 Steps. So it says specifically prayer and meditation. What is meditation? So when I had that question, you know, you go on Google meditation and what do you get? You get a meditation that either does one of two things. One is think about nothing. The other is think about your breath, which is also think about nothing. When you did a meditation, when you led a meditation, you led a meditation. Um, do you recall this? I don't remember the specific instance you're it was referencing, on a topic. but I, I've taught this many times, so I'm sure that I was consistent. No, you had a you you had a 20 minute meditation or so where it was a guided meditation by you. I'm 90. Oh, got it. Yeah, yeah, the guided meditation. It's on YouTube. Yeah. Yes. So in the guided meditation, which was very different than, you know, you were instructing the listener to do the same thing one would do when doing a, a meditation like. You go into a yoga studio and do a meditation, which would be, you just close your eyes, right? Sit still, stand still, whatever it is, right? Focus on this. And I, there was a topic that you were focused that you were focused on. Okay. So would I don't okay, know so if I you, said sit still, close your eyes. I don't. I, I don't think I did. Because I not think sitting. I remember the close your eyes or taking. I think I, don't I think remember I did. something there. Well, well, it's it's on YouTube. We can pull it up. But I I because I, I don't think it's so important. Those things are not so important. But to, fine. To, I remember the feeling. I remember the point. Feeling. Yeah. Well, maybe say people won't remember what you said. They remember how you made them feel. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But, but no. I remember that you definitely called it a meditation. I did call it a meditation. And when you use the word meditation, most people. I assume to do that. Most people have certain associations. The word the word meditation is so like fraught with with connotations. Today. It's it's amazing how successful they were. Most people associate uh, meditation today with some uh, form of uh, Eastern mysticism. That's what I'm saying. A lot of it is based on Buddhist practices. Yeah, it is. Yes, 100%. And there, so the goal is to banish discursive thought. This is exactly what I was talking and about. And my this, meditation this was to engage and 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 to to provoke discursive thought okay so right so this essentially like for me which is something practical as someone who practices this both in the form of meditation and both in the form of um recognizing the limits of the mind like making it very practical for me is that the jewish way of meditating is to meditate about something so that that something can be co contemplated as deeply as possible while at the same time recognizing the hazards 
of contemplating something too deeply because we may think that contemplation has the answer to everything. So once we recognize, once we've sufficiently protected ourselves by this instruction that Moses was given by God, tell them that the civil laws we're going to put in front of them. What does in front of them mean? That we're going to make it make sense. We're going to they're going to deeply internalize it, and also it's going to be established. Um, it's, it should be placed in in, in courts of um, before courts of law. That what that's communicating to us is contemplate deeply, meditate on a specific subject. Obviously, everyone will take it in their way. I'm saying, for me, meditate deeply on a specific subject, take it to the limits of the mind, recognize the hazards, get it to excite you on all levels, specifically because you're engaging more of yourself. Don't banish thought. Don't, um, d- don't, don't eliminate it. Go as far as you could to the outer bounds of it. Right. Use what's out there in the world, whether it's technology or science or everything else in order to allow us to even further it more and more. And while at the same time um, being sensitive to how dangerous that is because going there could be the the place where this relationship gets ruptured. I, I got a speaking inquiry yesterday. Um, I didn't speak to them yet, but my manager who takes my speaking inquiries forwarded to me their voicemail. It's a group of educators, Orthodox Jewish educators from all over the world. I'm not sure what the organization is, but it's a, like a multinational organization. And they get together for like teacher training and professional development uh, online like once a month. The topic they wanted me to speak about was that the hidden things are for God and only the revealed things are for us. That's what they called it. And they wanted me, then they, then they, they explained. We had a big debate about nister, the hidden aspects of Torah, meaning Kabbalah, Siddhis, the spiritual stuff, mysticism. How much of it is allowed to be taught? How much of it should actually be taught? And how much of it do we need to just stay away from it? Because better not to go there. Leave it alone. Um, I loved that question, by the way. I, a lot of times I get an, uh, an inquiry for a speaking engagement, and I'm not so excited about the topic. But this, this is a great, this is a great topic. I love this topic. Because I love that they're actually troubled with the question. They're afraid of what will happen if they study this stuff. And and I respect that, that they're, I mean, to me, that, that, that that's, it's coming from a place of, of sincerity. Like only a fool just blithely jumps into the study of Pneumia Satoira without even considering that it might be dangerous, but even, but only a, an even bigger fool will be turned away by that fear without <laughs> looking into it further and finding out that <laughs> God wants us to go to that place. This is similar to what we spoke about um, in our last podcast about money and intimacy, where we, where we spoke about that. Like, that is the test. That's, what, that's what's wanted, is to not be sober in a meeting, Okay, congratulations, you're sober in a right. meeting. Go be sober in a relationship. Go be sober right. while working. Like, test 
the outer bounds. I think the way of, we talked about last, the, the, uh, it wasn't the last time we discussed the sicha, but it was a different right. subject, right? We spoke about the, 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 the spiritual sandbox. That was a tongue twister. The spiritual sandbox. Relationships and money, and they're so fraught with temptation and confusion. And like, what do I need it for? And so I think the way, I don't remember if I use these exact words, but it's easy to be holy in heaven. God wants you to God wants you to come down here into this complicated world and find holiness here. And this is very similar to what we're saying here. Yes. Go test the outer bounds of the mind, but don't fall into the trap of the believing the mind has all the answers. That's right. That's right. So, it's easy to have faith if you don't use your brain. And conversely, it's easy to use your brain so much that you lose your faith. And either of those options are unacceptable. And ungodly. Or, un or not, 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 not according to the Chabad way. Which, what's interesting, right, when I learned this, um, it seemed, okay, there's a sicha, another beautiful sicha, but in learning it with you now, it almost feels foundational to... Um, it is foundational. Chabad's perspective... It is. Um, it's explaining to you the the entire uh, purpose for the approach. Yeah, there's a massive distinction between this way of viewing the world and all other Hasidists and many other religions and Eastern sure. Eastern philosophies and everything else. It's a huge distinction. Sure. It's foundational. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's let me ask you this question and then we'll um, wrap this up. So you have said, I've heard you say before. Um, that I don't want to put words in your mouth, but something to the effect of because we live in a false reality, all truth is a contradiction. Okay, I didn't use those exact words, but I, truth can only be grasped through paradox. Truth can only be grasped. Is this one of those? Yeah. This is one of those. And if And if you've stumbled upon a truth and you can't formulate it as a paradox... Dig a little deeper. Where does this thought come from? All truth can only be formulated, can only be understood as a paradox. It comes from. And life. did you connect that to it being a false reality? Not a false reality. The the reality. I mean that that sounds a little Buddhist. I'm using the Hebrew terminology. What do they say? Elam hasheker. Okay, a false but world. even Elam hasheker doesn't mean the world is objectively false. I mean God made the world. It's not an illusion. <sighs> That's very important that the world is not it's not an illusion like Doug Henning. Doug right, I certainly Henning, feel that way. Magician from yeah. the 70s say they're not magic tricks, they're illusions. <sighs> yeah. So so what do you mean? So what does it mean by a false world? It means that the world's not an illusion, but it is it's not the ultimate truth. It is easy to be deluded and to experience a delusion about what you oh, see. Oh, understood. Okay. You're not saying it's a... The reality okay, is the reality, that's... but we our perspective can be warped. Understood. So uh, regardless, it seems like on the topic, this idea that all truth will have to be explained in nature, a paradox. Because the nature of the human experience is that of being finite.
In fact, I might even say that the entire purpose for the embodiment of the soul, which is synonymous with the human experience, the entire purpose of it is so that the infinite can, can experience the finite. And here's a paradox to then find infinity within that. So because the nature of human experience is finite, we don't see everything. And even if you could see everything, you couldn't see it all at once. Therefore, any time that you have one perspective on, on any matter, you are by definition working within the limitations. You're, you're, you're being trapped within the limitations. Right. We have to go so far in this that we get the finite with the infinite, right? The ultimate paradox. Okay, so that's what you're saying. Not a false world. That's a better way of saying it. Because we have finite within infinity, which is the greatest paradox of all. So when I get to any truth, I have to have a paradox. Because if you don't have a paradox, you're still functioning within limitations. Right. I haven't reached the outer bounds of this system. I haven't reached the ultimate truth within this system. System is the wrong word, but yeah. The ultimate truth within this reality. That itself is, is the paradox. Is, is, is there only God or did God create a world? And the answer is yes, and that's the paradox. He created a world, and yet only he exists. But I thought you just said the world exists too. Yes, but there's only God. Right. Many examples of paradoxes. So, And, and every truth is, is a paradox. By the way, I was just thinking the other day, just yesterday, and I hadn't articulated this yet. It's a simple thought. It's not that profound. But there's a word that really bothers me. Um, opinion, the word opinion. The word opinion doesn't bother me, but the, the use of the word opinion. A lot of times people translate um, the Hebrew word dea as opinion. So, you know, like in Jewish law, often you have different deas. You want to be yetzel right, Deus is more knowings. Right. So you want it like, yeah. So dea actually means knowledge or or a way of knowing something, but it's often a tr translated as opinion. And, and the reason I sort of cringe at that translation is it makes it sound so petty. It's like the two sages were sitting in the study hall and one was like, yeah, I like uh, chocolate. Uh, I, well, I like vanilla, like an opinion. Like, okay, everyone's entitled to their opinion, right? I realized that the proper or a proper translation is perspective. And then it makes sense. Of course, two people. One's a wave, one's a particle. Ooh. <laughs> I like that. That's right. That's right. Wow. Okay, I didn't think it was something uh, new. Yeah. yeah. So... It, it only makes sense that two people would be standing at two different vantage points and would have two different perspectives. 
Right. Right. That's right. To say it that way is very interesting because the fact that we can be two different people and agree, like, how is that possible? Yeah, that, that, that's we, by weird. Right. That's the wonder. Like we're so, looking at it from two different perspectives. How is this possible that we're coming? Whenever to we are able to appreciate truth, it's always got to be bigger than one perspective. Truth has to be encompassing of diverse perspectives. Fascinating. Rip Chase, this was a pleasure. Rudy's gonna he's not he's not gonna do anything to me, but yeah, um I will be fun. disappointed that I missed part of his uh um his event, but it was well worth it. Okay. It was, it was well worth it. Did it connect to the lost tribes? Did we connect it? Um overtly no, but we probably could. Let's leave it. We could. Just the knowledge that we could should give you enough belief in us to come back to the next episode, whatever it is we talk about. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. I'll see you, Ellie. <laughs>